The human spirit is unconquerable. We are individuals and we are sovereign, born with unlimited potential, gifted from our creator. Our mission is to break free from the systems that bind us. I volunteer as tribute. We strive for peace and prosperity and overcome all challenges, roadblocks, and obstacles. We are empowered because we think for ourselves and we act for ourselves. We are self-reliant and independent, but guided by the wisdom of those who share our values. What possible difference can I make? There is no government, no ruler, nor ideas that are able to stop us. We are driven to succeed because we seek political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. It's all for nothing if you don't have freedom. This is Mike Corbell, and you are listening to The Invictus Mind. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming back to hear another episode of The Invictus Mind. You know, I wanted to add a short introduction to this episode. Sort of a tip for people who may want to do a podcast of their own, or even if you just like to listen to them. You need to understand this is really an interesting experience. Whenever I look for guests, I always have a couple resources at my disposal, and I usually reach out to someone to see how they are specialists on a topic that I want to talk about. And if I don't know them very well, or at all, well, I'm going to have to do a little bit of research on them. When I first discovered this guest, I saw that he was a certified coach and a public speaker. That made me want to reach out to him for conversation. Now, normally I'll have three or four days to dig into what I want to talk about, but when I sent him my calendar, he booked something for the very next day, which gave me exactly 24 hours to learn about who he was and to prepare for a discussion. The funny thing is, I discovered on the morning that I was going to record with him that my guest has two profiles on the internet because he does multiple things. I really wanted to cover them both, so I was a little unprepared because of the nature of this person's life experience, but I did feel it necessary to talk about both topics. You're going to hear me introduce my guest once we get started, and about halfway through the subject will change, but I think you'll all enjoy where we went. So let's get started. Well, hello, I'm sitting here with Frank King. He is a six-time TED Talk speaker. He is a comedian. He calls himself the mental health comedian. He's been a writer for 20 years on The Tonight Show, made appearances on Showtime Comedy Club Network, appeared on A&E Showtime at the Improv, and is open for Jerry Seinfeld, Adam Sandler, Jeff Foxworthy, and Dennis Miller. He's also a certified laugh coach and a stress reduction specialist. How are you doing today, Frank? Well, the TV credit you missed was on the old Star Search with Ed McMahon. I won two rounds and lost to a puppet. You lost to a puppet? (laughs) It's on YouTube. Somebody put it up on YouTube. Well, when I was looking at your resume, Frank, I was really impressed because of some of the experience you have. Uh, You know, obviously, there's a, a, a lot to talk about in your comedy career. But I also noticed that uh, you were a, um, a coach for, for businesses and tell, telling people how to become a TED Talker. Correct. And you have uh, some real-world experience and uh, a more sober topic, uh, suicide prevention. Correct. I thought we'd cover a little bit about that today. Absolutely. Well, I'm really interested in, uh, in your comedy career. I, I love comedy. I, I'm thinking back to the days of George Carlin and Richard Pryor, but, uh, of course, some of my... Uh, my favorite comedians today are, are still out there, like uh, you know Jeff Foxworthy, who you said you've opened with, and uh, you know of course Adam Sandler too. Yeah. Uh, so thirty-four years in the, in the comedy field—is that where you started your career? 
Uh, no, out of college, I sold insurance for six years. Really? And I wasn't doing comedy. And I realized if I didn't start doing comedy and stop doing insurance, I was going to kill myself sooner rather than later. So my second thought was, well, what the heck? I could quit my job, divorce my wife, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. That's why my third TEDx talk is called Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. Mm -hmm. I can relate. And one fact, I, uh, I was an insurance salesman for several years of my career as well. So Great business, but I just felt like I was walking around somebody else's life and I wasn't doing comedy. My first night doing comedy at an open mic, April 1st, 1984. Halfway through my routine, I heard a voice inside my head, you're home. Mm. Second thing I heard was, we're going to do this for a living. We have no idea how, but we are. And then I, um, I guess um, about seven or eight months later, went on the road day after Christmas, 85, with my lovely girlfriend, now my wife for 34 years. We were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop. No home. Yeah, that, that's a world record, isn't it? <laughs> I think it should. If it's not, it should be. I, I'm not in the Guinness book, but yeah, I don't know anybody who did that many nights in a row with no home. So uh, what was the, what were some of your favorite places you played? Do you, I mean, with that many shows, I'm sure you can't remember uh, all of them, but uh, do you have a few of your favorite ones? Yeah, and by the way, comics generally don't remember their best shows. Worst shows, chapter and verse. Okay. Uh, opening up for Foxworthy at the Civic Center in Raleigh, North Carolina, my hometown. I was working at a radio station at the time. And I opened for Randy Travis in Michigan, Amphitheater, 5,000 seats, two nights, places packed. Um, over for Lou Rawls, two shows at the Hotel Del Coronado on New Year's Eve. You'll never find another <laughs> love like mine. Really nice guy. Opened uh, work with Seinfeld in Raleigh, North Carolina, my old hometown. And Ron White of the Blue Collar Comedy Guys, Bill Engvall. Never worked with Larry the Cable Guy, although that's a great story. You want to hear how he became Larry the Cable Guy? Yeah, please do. He was living in Florida. I have a friend who was same area at the same time doing comedy, and Larry, Larry, um, the real name's Dan Whitney. Dan was calling into a local radio show and doing impressions, funny impressions and gags. And he called in one morning off the air. They said, look, we love you, Dan, but your stuff's getting kind of stale. Come up with a new character. We'll go ahead and do it today. But, you know, take a couple weeks off, develop some new material. So when they put him on hold, the two hosts were talking and one of the hosts had expected the cable guy the day before mm. and was told to be at home from noon to four. And of course, the cable guy didn't show. So when they picked up the phone with Dan Whitney on the other end to do some comedy, he goes, hey, man, it's Larry the Cable Guy. Sorry to make you out your house yesterday by four. That's how Larry the Cable Guy was. <laughs> and it, it was like a couple of minutes of his act in the beginning. And, of course, it became his act in the end. Now his face is on car air fresheners at Walmart or what's it, that, that um, animated movie Cars where he plays the tow truck, I think. Right. And the guy's an industry unto himself. Yeah, yeah, I've I've seen a couple of his flicks. It's uh, pretty good. Yeah, and nice guy by the way as well. Okay, awesome. And uh, you went from doing stand up to uh, becoming a speechwriter for Tonight Show, correct? Actually, uh, Jay was the permanent guest host back in the late eighties. Okay. And Johnny would pull up on a Friday night, tell his staff, "I'm taking next week off," which meant Monday night's best of Carson rerun. Mm -hmm. Tuesday through Friday, Jay would have to host, and Jay would have to have 18 jokes per night for the monologue. So he started hiring comics, road comics, as contractors Interesting. to pump in topical jokes. I, I would send in 12, 24 topical jokes a day, 
And I was averaging one a week when he was working. And then when he got the job for real, they let a lot of the contract labor go. But they kept me and a couple of other guys on. We kept fa- we kept writing by fax or eventually the Internet. So, uh, yeah, the dream was that you would be plucked from obscurity as a fax writer mm. and put on staff inside the building. And it happened to a couple of guys. Never happened to me. But that was that was the dream. OK, OK. So you don't have any comedy specials that uh, we can find on YouTube or anything? <laughs> you can find me on YouTube. I'll tell you, go to go to Frank King. Deer hunting. OK, my most requested bit. I've had clients say to me, yeah, we're going to book you for comedy, but you got to do the deer hunting bit. All right, fine. <laughs> yeah. So, no, you go to you go you go to YouTube, type in Frankie and comedy. You'll find, you know, evening at the improv, Showtime's Comedy Club Network, Showtime's Comedy on the Road, me losing to a puppet on Star Search. Mm. Yeah, my, my career peaked in 89. That's the thing about show business. You never know whether you're on the way up or on the way down. And I didn't realize at the time because I did Showtime twice that year. And then three episodes of Star Search and uh, Evening the Improv, all in 89. And I thought, man, I'm taking off. <laughs> but you have uh, pivoted in your career. Uh, for those who can't see the videos, we're recording an audio podcast as well. You see the TEDx sign in the back. And Very subtle. You, Very subtle. You, can, uh, you can claim on your career that you are a six-time TED Talk speaker. Correct. Yeah. And what happened was, I always wanted to make a living and a difference. Mm-hmm. And after the last recession, 08, 09, and 10, meeting planner said, Frank, listen, we love you. We can't pay you that kind of money anymore just to be funny. You got to teach our audience something. So I, in 2010 in April, we had come, I'd come close enough to killing myself. I can tell you where the barrel of my gun tastes like because we'd filed Chapter 7 bankers. And I thought, you know what? If I got some training in suicide prevention, I've got the lived experience and the comedy. I could keynote on that. So that's when I, I became the mental health comedian and had to rebrand mm. because everybody thought it was just funny. Can he do something serious? So I got my first TED talk in 2014 and I came out on stage as depressed and suicidal. Nobody knew my family, my friends, my wife. And I talked about suicide prevention mm-hmm. and that allowed me to rebrand with the meeting planners when they saw this super serious, but you know, with humor, TEDx. Then that that and from that one, I got two more. Two more contacted me and said, "Do you have any more mental health topics?" Oh yeah. So I did two more, and then I applied for the fourth, fifth, and sixth one. So, but yeah, it's great for marketing, credibility, visibility, and and for a comedian. <laughs> right. So somebody will take you seriously. So that's how I made the transition from comedy, you know, comedy, comedy clubs, whatever. To so I don't do much comedy anymore unless the client goes, "Listen." I know you're doing a keynote tomorrow on suicide, but we're having a banquet that night. Can you do 45 minutes of stand up? Yeah. You know, it, it seems like, uh, you know, comedy and, and something as sober as suicide just wouldn't have a place together. But uh, I'm yeah, interested in, in learning how, uh, you know, you, uh, you mix the two. How I navigate those waters. Um, yeah. The thing is, they want the lived experience, you know, the life story. They want the learning objectives, teach them something. I teach them signs and symptoms of depression and thoughts of suicide, but to do what to say. And the fact that I can do it with organic, tasteful humor, mostly still funny stories about me, mm-hmm. um, then that's just, that's a bonus. They're just, they'd much rather listen to me for an hour than a clinician. Sure. So sure. it's, um, and and um, being a comedian, but, but you know, there are other, 
aspects of my life, my family, we, we live with generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mom found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mom and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. Mm-hmm. And like I told you, I came close enough to killing myself. I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. By the way, spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger, which usually gets a nervous laugh from the audience. And then I followed up with this. Yeah, a friend of mine was at a keynote and he never heard me say those words. I didn't pull the trigger. So he came up afterwards. He goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? <laughs> I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? Oh, wow. <clears throat> That's the kind. And, and here's the thing. Here's a psychological principle about comedy and tragedy. If you tell somebody something serious and then you lighten the mood briefly with a little humor, then they're much more, their brain's more prepared to absorb the next serious piece. Mm-hmm. There's a reason they call it comic relief. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it's like clearing the palate between the serious pieces. So it's actually, I, I don't know if I've ever lost a gig because I, are you a comedian? Really? Well, I don't think, well, no, I have had one where they brought that up and thought that wouldn't be, but I think I ended up booking that one as well. <laughs> Convince them it made sense. That's how the comedy and the series work together. Sure. Sure. I've spent some time in a Toastmasters organization and as a podcaster, yeah. you got to, you got to train yourself on how to speak uh, to an audience, much different speaking to a camera than it is in front of an audience of 5,000 people. But uh, some of the best uh, speakers I've known uh, are, are aware of those skills of having comic relief and, and, and having a serious tone to really hone in that message for them. Yeah. If I can make them cry and make them laugh, if I move them from pole to pole and back, then there's an expression in the speaking business. They'll probably not remember what you said. They will remember how you made them feel. Mm, right. Absolutely. So, as I was looking through some of the stuff that you've done, you are, you're now a coach as well. You help businesses and uh, people who want to become public speakers uh, do things like land TED gigs and, uh, and uh, get uh, book deals and things of that nature. Yeah, book deals are outside my purview. Landing TEDx gigs. Um, what most of my clients are either starting a speaking career and they want the TEDx to kick it off, mm-hmm. or they have a speaking career and they want to up their game with a TEDx. And okay. so I take them through the application process. And then if they get the audition, we we prepare them for probably what they're going to ask them at the audition. And then if they get it, then we work on the 12 to 18 minute actual talk. So and then along the way, we do speaker marketing. You know, do you have a speaker website? And um, does all your social media reflect your speaker? So you, you begin to brand them across all those platforms, because oftentimes nowadays, when somebody thinks about hiring you for whatever, they're going to hit social media and see if they can find you and, and see who, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see what you're like, how you behave. Yeah, you got, you got to be very careful nowadays what you put up on Facebook or whatever. Sure, sure. Now, I've uh, I've seen a couple of TED talks. I actually did watch the one talk, uh, one of your talks on TED. Uh, most famously, uh, the TED talk I remember was with Simon Sinek. But uh, why would why would somebody want to be on a TED talk as opposed to anywhere else? Is it just because of their branding or? Yeah, branding. Uh, you see the TED letters behind me. My clients, once they get the TEDx, they'll have a thumbnail on their, you know, a picture on their homepage okay. with the big red letters behind them. So that gives them instant credibility. And then a button that says, see them in action and takes them right to that TED talk. So it's not going to get you an engagement or a booking, but it's not going to hurt, you know, especially if you're up against a couple of people who don't have one. Sure. Uh, you know, the TED, it says that somebody, a third party has vetted you and thought it was, it was an idea good enough to be on sound big red dot 
Mm. And so that's the credibility. Um, six of them, it's a whole, it's a whole different. But clients go, here you got TED Talk, six of them. I'm sorry, did you say six of them? I did. Working on seven, eight, nine right now. Well, very good. But uh, you spend a lot of your time, uh, like I said, coaching people. And uh, just so how do you find the clients that you're looking for? And what, what are they actually look, coming to you for? Is it Because, I mean, there's lots of places you can learn about public speaking. Is it just because yeah. you're experiencing t- with TED? Or how do, how do the clients find you? What, what makes you incredible? Well, six TED Talks. Somebody said, somebody said to me, what qualifies you to teach this? I said, well, apparently I'm right. really good at it. Um, the, I, I use Twitter and LinkedIn. I've got a guy who runs an algorithm for me that looks for people who might want a TEDx, like speakers, authors, Toastmasters. If that's in their profile, then the algorithm sends them a message. And when they respond live, if they respond live, I'm right on top of it with a live message, not an auto respond, but a live message. Hey, that's great. Let's set up a time on the calendar. Here's my calendar. So, So both Twitter and LinkedIn, I do that. And I'm pretty much focusing all my marketing on LinkedIn because it's business to business. I got 24,000 connections, I guess, followers. Um, so I'm focusing on LinkedIn. The, also on SEO, hopefully, okay. if you went to put in TEDx coach or TEDx coaching, I usually come up, oftentimes come up on page one, sometimes page two. Um, for the mental health speaking, my, my track record is a little better. If you typed in... Suicide prevention speakers, dental, because that dental is one of my markets. On on the on page one, you'd find three, four, five, six organic listings for me. Mm-hmm. So the the speaking gigs and a, and and a number of TEDx talks come by way of SEO. Uh, but then again, Twitter, you know, outbound marketing on Twitter and LinkedIn. I just hired a company that gets you engagement on LinkedIn. And man, <laughs> I was getting you know reaction or two. You know, uh, comment of three. And I looked yesterday at one of the posts they put up for me, 191 reactions, 47 comments. That's some engagement. Right. So, yeah, right. I, you know, I'm old. So it takes me a while to tumble to the fact it's not just, you know, putting it up on the platform. You need, you know, the algorithm is watching to see anybody care. <laughs> <laughs> right. They move you up, you know, higher in the. Sure, sure. Purchase. Yeah. Well, Frank, I'd like to uh, dive in a little bit to your history because uh, you talked about the life of a comedian and uh, 2,600 days is, that's, <laughs> how many years is that? Seven, eight years in a row? Seven years and change, my friend. Never cleaned a bathroom. I'm telling you. Right. And uh, you had the privilege of bringing your wife along with you. So I'm sure she kept you in line at some points. Yeah. And, you know, she's my girlfriend. Right before we left, I said to her, um, I'm going on the road to be a stand-up comedian full time. You want to come along? Figuring mm. she'd say, "Oh hell no," and she goes, "Yeah." So we gave up the apartment, our jobs, put a bunch of stuff in storage, and jumped into my tiny Dodge Colt, right? And took off across the country. And we didn't mean to go on the road for that long, but it was, that that mid '80s to mid '90s was the comedy club boom. I mean, there are comedy clubs everywhere. Sure. One nighters, two nighters, full weeks. So you're able to stay booked year round. Mm-hmm. And all, all she asked was, um, when we got done, could we come back to San Diego where we were living at the time? I started at the comedy store in San Diego. It's a branch of the one that's in L.A. on Sunset. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So uh, late, late 1980s, we went back to San Diego and then on Northern California and then all the way up here to the Northwest where we're, we're in Eugene now. This is probably last stop. 
that's uh, that's quite a life. I mean, not only are you meeting interesting people, but uh, you probably uh, have a few temptations coming your way here and there. And yeah, nobody nobody wants to sleep with a comedian. Uh, rock rock, you know, the drummer in the rock band even get, you know, the, the lead singer, of course, maybe yeah. the bass player. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, my 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 lovely wife and I were on the road together, so we were sort of the June and Ward Cleaver of comedy. Okay. There okay. were comics and both vegetarians, both worked out every day, mm. you know, came home after the show, didn't sit out and drink. And so there were comics near the end of our road career. They would tell their manager, look, I need three weeks with Frank and Wendy. I got to dry out, get some exercise and eat right. Sure. So she was, you know, like a, like a den mother on the road sometimes. <laughs> right. Like I said, kept you in line, you know, prevented you from like, getting into trouble. Yeah. Oh yeah. And we had, we had a ball. I mean, those people, comics, there are some that didn't have any common sense whatsoever, but they were, they were all very intelligent and interesting and dear God, funny. I mean, there were some just, you know, make you cry funny people mm. and very few, you know, who were unpleasant. That's good. That's good. I want to turn a, turn a leaf here and, uh, and talk a little bit, something more sober in your profile. You you've done some training with, uh, with businesses as far as, what happened during the COVID-19 year? I mean, we're still living this and we have to talk about social distancing and. Oh uh, yeah. Again, in March of 2020, I realized that mentally ill people, most of the ones who are high functioning have what's called a self-care plan Mm. because we wake up in an uncertain world every day, regardless of the, you know, the, whatever's going on elsewhere. And then I realized it's transferable. So I was doing podcast after podcast after podcast. And and by the way, keynote after keynote after keynote on how do you create a self-care plan and some other techniques that people with mental illness use simply to get out of bed in the morning. Because what mm-hmm. was happening, I thought, was you get a lot of um, neuronormal people, never been depressed. Along comes a pandemic. Everybody's life turned upside down. Now, they may be depressed, but do they know it's depression? I mean, if you'd never had it, how would you? Sure. I give signs and symptoms like um, eat too much, can't sleep, sleep too much, can't eat. Or let your personal hygiene go, mm-hmm. you know, because you can't drag yourself out of bed in the morning, run a little wash, take a shower. So I was teaching neurotypical people what mentally ill people do to, like I said, get out of bed in the morning, simply move forward. And I think it was it was a um, revelation to, (laughs) you know, it's that simple. Um, Yeah, it's that simple. And here, but let me give you the through line before I tell you what I do. Everything you're about to hear are things I can control. That's what mentally ill people, you just control things you can't control, let the rest go. I mean, because you just haven't got the bandwidth. So my, mine is diet. I'm on the keto diet Mm -hmm. and I eat and I do intermittent fasting. I eat one meal a day, somewhere between, like 20, 22 hours between meals. So diet, exercise. Um, I have, there's a gym here in town. Thank God, finally opened back up. And, oh, this is, um, I don't know if your viewers can see. Oh, that's, that's you, huh? Okay. Yeah, that's me from my, for those of you who are listening and not watching, that is, uh, if you left Arnold Schwarzenegger in the laundry, in the dryer too long, that's what <laughs> But that's that exercise is part of my self-care plan because okay. I believe you should have a hobby outside of what it is you do, completely outside of what it is you do. 
And, you know, with lifting weights and working out, I never even have to open my mouth. And of course, I do nothing but run my mouth in what I do. So it, it allows me to achieve, to see, you know, the results. And I've had two aortic valve replacements, double bypass, heart attack, and three stents. So part of it is for my cardiac health. So diet, exercise, a good night's sleep is restorative. A meditation, I meditate twice a day, usually after a meal. 30 minutes is a guided meditation, takes you down, brings you back up on the other end. Mm-hmm. And medication. I, I didn't take medication for a long time. And my, I turned 60. My wife goes, just ask your doctor for something. So I said, hey, man, I need some antidepressants. And he goes, why would you need those? I said, because I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Couldn't write this prescription fast enough. Mm. <clears throat> so, I, And here's the deal. One third of psychotropics, you know, psych meds, work spectacularly well for people. Mm. One third of the people, eh. And the other third, it's horrible. Side effects, not working. I'm not depressed. I'm not happy. I'm nothing. I can't live like this. So my advice is, if it's not working for you, get the cheek swab DNA test where they can tell you and they take your DNA and they try to match you with the antidepressant or two that'll work best with your metabolism. Okay. So, yeah, so that's what I would do. If if this one had not worked so well for me, I would have done that immediately to figure out which one was one or two were the ones, it, you know, you get a lot less of that, you know, go on, doesn't work, taper off, go on, doesn't work, taper off. Not quite so much the lab rat. Mm. So diet, exercise, good night, sleep, meditation, medication, and something called gamification. Gamification, if I can't get out of bed, I make a list. It's a do list of six things. The game is when I scratch off number six, I can go back to bed. I don't care if it's three in the afternoon, broad daylight, pull the covers mm-hmm. over my head and do what I really want to do, which is binge watch Netflix. Mm. I win. That's the game. Okay. And finally, they asked an astronaut who'd been in the space station for a solid year. How do you handle that kind of social isolation? He said, one word, routine. I go to bed about the same time, get up about the same time, exercise same time, eat my meal same time, binge, net, binge watch Netflix same time. So he had, you know, every, I mean, again, the through line is control the things you can control and you got to let the rest of it go. Yeah, we noticed in this country that there was a spike in suicide because of a pandemic. And, uh, you know, the, the isolation has just killed people. I know people in my life who uh, who suffer with depression and bipolar. And so uh, I understand that sometimes they can have a good day. Sometimes they can have a bad day. But there's millions of people out there, like you said, probably don't even realize that they have symptoms or they have something going on. How would they know? Be able to tell. Yeah. How would you know? If you've never been there, how would you know? Mm-hmm. So that's why I gave them signs and symptoms, you know. And if it happened to be a loved one, what do you say? What don't you say? What do you do? What don't you do? So, yeah. So then I was doing those virtually, one keynote like that a month virtually. Fortunately, you know, business has come back in the speaking arena. I've got four, five, five bookings in September, one pro bono virtual, one for money virtual, and three live at this moment, (laughs) you Mm. know. Uh, you never know. I could, I could know tomorrow. Well, we're going virtual. Yeah, you know, I've been to several corporate events in my career. Uh, I not so much anymore since I've gone uh, independent. But uh, you never hear a topic like that brought up. But I, I'm sure that there it is a huge uh, demand. I mean, people trapped in these jobs and you know the social isolation they have. Sometimes they can't even go to work. And so I'm, I'm sure you're providing a valuable service to these businesses because you know they don't want to lose their employees and. No, that, no, suicide is such a tragic thing anyway. 
I specialize in five or six industries, occupations that have a high rate of suicide, doctors, dentists, veterinarians, attorneys, construction, and agriculture. Hmm. There are six of the top 10. And so they, you know, they have meetings, annual, the association, whatever. They have money. They use outside speakers most often. And they really have a need to hear what I have to say. That's what I tell my speakers. Look, got to, they got to have an annual meeting. They got to have, you know, um, enough money to pay your fee. They got to use outside speakers because that's what you are. And they really have to need what you have to say. Because I don't care how good the speech is. If they don't need it. Why would they buy it? Why do you think those six industries are in the top? I'm curious. You said well, construction is male heavy and okay. it's, you know, it's tough men and eight out of 10 people who die in the U S as of, you know, this moment are men. Most of them age 45, 54, most of them Caucasian actually. And so construction is male heavy. So that would, you know, by the, by the percentages that would give them a higher rate. Dentists and veterinarians both come out of, professional school, dental school, veterinary school with $350,000 in student loan debt on average. Okay, sure. So no matter how successful your practice is, that's, that's a big nut every month. Mm-hmm. So it's not suicide that's a big killer in, in veterinary medicine or dentistry. It's stress, stress, darling, stress, um, induced or exacerbated mental and physical ailments like high blood pressure, stroke, heart attack, and of course, depression, thoughts, suicide. Hmm. Now, have you been able to work with uh, younger professionals or, or even uh, students in school? Because I know that there's a high rate of that going on. Is it mainly just uh, older adults that uh, you, you speak to? No, actually, I, I do colleges as well. Uh, okay. I don't do high schools as of yet. But I, I, a friend of mine is putting together a tour where you get like three high schools in a big stadium. And they get to select their speakers. They want a motivational speaker or, you know, inspirational or suicide prevention or, you know, uh, whatever. So currently I just do as far down as it goes colleges because three, three college students a day die by suicide every day. So again, it's an, it's a, it's a, not an industry, but it's um, a slice of the, you know, the population that has a serious problem with suicide. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes just being that friend. I mean, obviously, you, you, you talked about making a checklist. You talk about having a routine. Mm-hmm. Just uh, just being that, that, that listening ear can really help somebody, right? Yeah, active listen. Um, actively listen. Mm-hmm. And don't be scared. Because <laughs> you're probably going to hear some disturbing stuff. Make sure you're in a good place physically and mentally when you do it. Make sure it's a quiet place where you can't be overheard. I usually let them select the spot. And then make sure you don't have anything backed up against... You know, another appointment is they're telling you they're about to kill themselves. Yeah. Not constantly looking at your watch and turn your smartphone off so you can actively listen and just listen. Yeah. And don't do this. Don't should all over them. That's a mental health expression. Don't right. should all over them. You should do this and you should do that. Right. Right. Better just to listen. So now you said that, uh, you know, you were you were very close. You tasted the barrel of your gun yeah. and uh, you had somebody that actually I don't know. How do you, how do you say it? How, how, how did you not go through with it? I mean, it's kind of a oh. weird question, but uh, what, what was that experience like? No, it's a great question. <laughs> I'm sure the other people wondering the same thing. Why didn't you pull the trigger? Well, I sold insurance out of college. You talked about selling insurance mm-hmm. and I had sold life insurance. And I knew that, that my life insurance policy had a two year suicide clause. 
Mm. It's also it's called the incontestability clause in sure. legalese, but commonly known as suicide clause, meaning that if I kill myself in the first 24 months, the policy was in force. They, they just give you back your premiums. They don't pay the death benefit. Right. After 24 months, they pay the whole thing. And I had a million dollars in life insurance. And we just filed Chapter 7 bankruptcy. So, mm. you know, I thought I can fix this. So I called up my agent. And as luck would have it, I'd only, I'd only paid in 22 months. Mm. I had to wait two months to kill myself. But because I have what's called chronic suicidal ideation, meaning... Suicide's always a solution on the menu for me and my tribe for problems large and small. When I say small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden. Get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. Mm. That's chronic suicidal ideation. So when I realized I had to wait 60 days or 62 days or whatever it was, I thought, I can do that because, you know, come day 62, I can kill myself. No problem. Yeah, it's ironic that that thought process, the chronic suicidal ideation helps keep me alive because suicide is most often not about wanting to kill yourself. It's about simply wanting to end the pain. Mm -hmm. And because I know I can kill myself at any moment, made that decision already, then I can stand a great deal of pain because I know I can make it go away. It's all about control again. Control the things you can control. So that's the story. That's amazing. Now, have you had, a? I mean, do you ever have an experience with somebody that was really close to you who was suffering the same thought process that you were actually able to intervene? Oh, yeah. I've, I've got a comedian friend, a comedian friend. She calls up, she goes, do you want to hear the story about I got into comedy? It's kind of dark. I said, I love dark. Okay. Said, well, I'm working this association in D.C. and I'm miserable. A good job, good benefits, but I hate it. My only joy, two open mic nights a week doing comedy. She goes, you know, and I got I got to realizing that that I was depressed and suicidal. And that if I didn't pursue comedy as a career, I was going to kill myself sooner rather than later. And I said to her, let me finish the story. She goes, OK. So then you said to yourself, what the heck? I quit the association job. Try comedy. If it works great. If it doesn't, I can still kill myself. She goes, how do you know that? No, honey, I lived it. Mm. Because I thought I was the only one who ever had that thought process. And mo- many mentally ill people think they're the only one. And I thought I was the only one who ever thought that kind of crazy thought. I didn't know it, it was a thing called chronic suicidal ideation. And I've met probably another three or four people, entrepreneurs, entertainers, same basic thought process. You know, living a life they thought they didn't belong in and had a dream they thought they belonged over there. And they realized, if I stay here, I'm done. Mm-hmm. So what, do, what have I got to lose? I'll put it all in one and roll the dice and... See what happened. So that was the power of being suicidal. Was I, you know, I, if I stayed put, I'm dying. So might as well give it a shot. Yeah. You know, there's uh, a lot of people talk about some of these celebrity suicides that have happened in years past. Uh, you know, people who have inspired me in the past, musicians, and uh, uh, I think of the comedian Robin Williams comes to mind, right? And, and all of a sudden, people ignorant of what you're talking about, the suicide ideation, you know, that depression that they're holding you would think that somebody is popular is famous is is probably wealthy that thought would never come across their mind but uh, it's, it's not even a status point in your life that caused that it's something else yeah and for me and people like me it's generally not situational i've been most depressed at some of the best times in my life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i was worried what would i what would happen if, if it was the worst time in my life that i found out 
But generally, it's just, it's, not, it's like a wheel. It's got a flat spot on it. And every now and then it comes around and you begin to cycle down. And everybody has a cycle. Mine's three days. Some people last up to three weeks. And it recurs. Just uh, with the medication, doesn't come around as often. It's not quite as deep. But that's, and Robin, I believe, although he never admitted it, I believe he was living with bipolar disorder, as manic as he was. Yeah. Met him, worked with him. For a couple of shows down in San Diego when I was a doorman in the world of comedy. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Nice guy. Mm. Not manic off stage in the least. Uh, but his two shows were almost identical. And people go, wait a minute. I thought that was coming off the top of his head. I said, that's the magic. It looks like it just occurred to him. Mm. Yeah. So, and I, I my third TED talk was called Mental Benefits, the Evolutionary Advantages of Mental Illness. Because I kept noticing that there were some very talented people who were also very mentally ill. And I thought, this can't be a coincidence. And so the talk, the talk starts off like this. What if those of us with a mental illness are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? In other words, I've got the depression and thoughts of suicide, but I think it's simply the flip side of my comic ability, creativity, imagination. You know, it's two sides of the same coin. I, I really don't believe I was, I'm broken. I believe I just happened to be made this way because that's the way my brain, I can teach you to write stand up and perform stand up. I cannot teach you to process incoming information the way my brain does because, you know, it, it's different. Right. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. The wiring somehow crossed up and part of it makes me depressed and part of it makes me extremely funny and also very fast with hecklers. I've said things back to hecklers. People come up afterwards and go, How did you think up that? that fast <laughs> honestly i didn't think it it just came out of my mouth i have no idea where it came from i you know i didn't consciously think it before i said it so i mean and lightning fast well frank one of the things that uh, i do with my podcast here and uh, i call my show the invictus mind invictus means unconquerable so i love talking to people who have not just amazing stories of overcoming problems in their life but how to maintain a mindset going forward of, okay, I'm not going to let something uh, get in my path. I want to go after my goals. I want to keep going. I mean, obviously your story is, uh, is unique to most people don't live the life as a comedian. Most people don't <laughs> have that, have that life in a spotlight, right? They don't have those extreme highs. Uh, but then again, I don't know. Most people don't have very, very strong lows, but I see you as an example of how to overcome, how to go forward. Yeah. I think going forward, but not overcoming, I used to say that I fight depression, but that's inaccurate. Fight means okay. I can win and I can't. It's in my DNA. It's just the way I'm wired. The, although there is some research in Canada on psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, mm -hmm. that it may not just be a fix. It may be a rewriting of the brain. You know, the, so it may actually, it won't be a patch. It'll be a fix. Mm. We'll see. Um, but I decided... I don't fight depression. I live with depression. There's a martial art called Aikido. Okay. And it basically it's the art of getting out of the way. Somebody, you know, throws a punch at you, you step offline and you, you blend with their energy as it goes by. And that's what I try to do with the depression is blend rather than resist, which takes a lot of effort. I blend with it and try to move forward with it because it's very, it, it has a great deal of energy. So if I can harness that energy and move forward, rather than push up against it and try to back it up, then I find it's much, much, I'm much more successful at dealing with it. Okay. So it's, um, there's a guy who wrote several books on horseback riding, Mark Rashid. And he says, 
you don't ride on the horse you ride with the horse okay so that's kind of what it is i don't i don't uh you know i don't ride on depression i live with depression so it's just part of your personality you have to deal with and uh just like anybody else might have some kind of situation and you just move forward day by day right yeah and i would i've got one of my tedx coaching clients has a tedx on individuation and then i didn't know that i didn't know that was a word but now i know and individuation means are you living up to your expectations or are you living up to somebody else's expectations? Mm. You know, are you the person you came here to be and are you doing the thing you came here to do? So one of the reasons that if I overcame, it was by, by listening to my intuition, which is telling me I didn't belong in insurance. I didn't belong with my first wife, although she's a wonderful woman. I belonged in comedy. And I did, I listened and I, you know, I, I took a chance, roll the dice if I'd failed, I would have killed myself. So I think you need to listen. You need to ask yourself a series of questions. You know, um, am I living up to somebody else's expectations? You know, like let's say your father or mother was a doctor, so they expect you to be a doctor. Mm. And in some cultures, that the pressure is relatively strong. Sure. Um, so that's the question. Are you are you living up to somebody else's like are you the person you came here to become? Are you happy with what you have become? And if you are. Are you doing what you came here to do? I was, I believe I was born to do stand-up comedy and speak. It's just, I, I told my first joke in the fourth grade, I decided right then I'm going to be a comedian. Mm. It just felt right. So, and when, like I said, when I got on stage, first five minutes of comedy, I heard that inside my head, you're home. <laughs> I think that may be the key to overcoming, you know, you know how many people working in jobs they could care less about. It's paycheck. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, some, some more than half people, I think surveyed, you know, could, they're not thrilled with what they're doing for a living. I love to ask people, what do you do? They tell me, I go, do you enjoy that? And they hesitate. And that's the answer right there. They can't even like have excitement in what they're telling you. Yeah. Now the, what I take, where I take them from there is this, I go, okay, if I can wave a magic wand, you can make a living doing anything. I mean, anything, what would it be? And almost all of them have an idea they've been sitting on. And I sat next to a woman. I asked her that question. She said, I can't remember what she said she would be doing. I said, well, if you quit your job, she set up exhibit halls for conventions. Would you and your husband survive financial? She goes, oh, yeah, we'd be fine. I said, well, a year later, I get an email from her. Frank, you probably don't remember me. We sat together at a plane. Mm. You asked me what I would do. I'm doing it. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, she'd never, she never... The thought had never crossed her mind she could do something different. I had to, I had to plant that thought, that subversive thought. Hey, you know, you could do something right. different. All right. Well, yeah. that's 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 good. You ne you never know when uh, you can actually make an impact in someone's life that'll uh, turn everything around. You know. Well, and that's what the clients bring me in to do. We talked about how difficult it is. People don't talk about it. even when one person dies every nine minutes in the U.S. of suicide. That's 146 a day. That's a 737 going into the ground like a lawn dart, losing everybody right, a day. Right. But if you start the conversation, mention the words depression and suicide out loud, almost everybody has a story. So they hire me to come in, be vulnerable, get up on stage, talk about my mental health issues, shed a tear as I tell the story or stories. And what it does is it gives people in the audience permission to give voice to their experiences and feelings without recrimination. I tell my, my speakers who are going to speak on mental health, you need to do a 45-minute keynote, 
15 Q&A and then set aside another half an hour because they're going to be people lined up, talk to you before you leave. Each one has a story or a question about mm -hmm. mental health. Mm -hmm. Happens over and over and over again. Well, great. Well, uh, Frank, I really appreciate uh, you sharing me some of this information. I know that uh, you said you have seven, eight, and nine lined up for TED Talks. I also noticed that you have uh, a couple of podcasts that you're, uh, are you hosting them or you, you were just on podcasts? I know I have a podcast called The Suicide Prevention Punchline because so many comedians kill themselves. Mm. And I'm a co-host on one called The Funny Shrink. I've got a friend who's a comic and um, has a master's in social work practice and, and The Funny Shrink University. And so, and I guess, I most often guess, because that, that mean, you know why? Michael, because you're going you're gonna to do the heavy lifting. You're going to do the editing. You're going to put it all together, do the show notes, and then you send me a link. And all I have to do is put it up on my social media. It's it's great. There you go. So that's the that's a easy way to get exposure for all those wannabe podcasters and, and everything like that. So Yeah. I tell people, look, if you don't want to take the time to you know record the podcast and edit it, whatever, just be a great guest on somebody else's podcast. <laughs> Let them do the hard work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, that's great. Then I was going to ask you to plug anything that you're doing, but uh, you know, obviously uh, Frank King can be found on social media, like you said. Any last parting words that uh, you'd like to leave? Yes. The website is The Mental Health Comedian, TheMentalHealthComedian.com. If you go there, I'm writing a series of books on men's mental health with two other authors. And the first one, if you put your email address in, you can download a free MP3 of the first book on it. It's on men's mental health. You can download it and it's unabridged and I'm narrating. So, and if you're a man and have an issue or we're selling more of them to women who have men in their lives that they can't figure out. Mm. So, and it's called a mental mechanics manual. Mental you know, it's a manual. manual. Okay. Yeah, so there's techniques, exercises, resources. Each one has 12 stories, 12 guys. Each guy has a different issue and then how they're coping. That's the, that's the, because men told us they want real men real problems and how they're really coping give it tell us how they're doing it because you know maybe we could duplicate it so all right well his name is frank king he's the mental health comedian and you can find him on the internet so i want to thank you for your time frank i really appreciate the conversation my pleasure michael